they're doing what good teams are supposed to do. Good teams are supposed to compete against playoff teams, steal some of those games, but really take care of business against bottom feeders and any team under 500. And they've done that so far. His career has shifted because of his understanding of the game and his skill set. He went from one of the best dunkers to ever play the game to now being able to still be athletic at 40 plus years old. I think they have a chip on their shoulders. They went in the summertime and tried to improve on a lot of their weaknesses. I think all the, the players understand their roles, they understand where they're gonna get shots from and they understand how they can help their team. Welcome to the Sydney Crosby episode of Pull Up. That's right, episode number 87. We've almost gotten to another milestone, episode 90, which means episode 100 is right next door. Currently in Portland, Oregon, recording this podcast, getting ready to head to Denver shortly to get ready to take on the Denver Nuggets. We had a game the other night against the New York Knicks. It was Melo's first time playing against the Knicks in a little while. In a Portland uniform, first time we were able to come away with the win. Um, the Knicks are a team who's trying to find an identity. Obviously, they fired Fisdale recently along with an assistant coach. They have a lot of young talent, a lot of forwards on their roster, and they're trying to figure out how to kind of put that all together and, and put behind you know some of the past struggles. Shout out to my guy Rodney Hood. He's going through surgery as we speak, and uh, we wish him a speedy recovery. We're definitely going to miss Rodney. One of the realest guys I've ever played with in the NBA. Quality character. Does things the right way. Obviously, he's talented. Um, he has a skill set that was unique to our team, and not just to our team, but to the NBA. Was leading the NBA or second in three-point percentage. I um, was shooting 50 from the field and a, a key part of our team. So just want to shout my guy Rodney Hood out because we're definitely going to miss him. Without further ado, I want to welcome Jordan to the pull-up pod. As always, Jordan, you live in New York. You've been watching the Knicks for, for quite some time. Um, is this the worst Knicks team you've seen? No question the worst Knicks team. I would I would say, though, the more important question, is it the most hapless, helpless? You know, a team that really doesn't even have an identity. You, you want to say rudderless, that would be the word. To fire David Fisdale, CJ, is, is so... It's such a Knicks thing to do because it once again doesn't address the problem. You know, it, whether or not you liked Fizz or Hornacek or any of these guys that have not, not been given a ton of time is it, almost immaterial because you're you're simply it's like it's like you you're you're not actually addressing the problem because you're you're almost it's like you have a broken car and all the parts are broken. I think I heard this analogy on uh, on, a, on a podcast yesterday. In like you're you're trying to fix a steering wheel, you know that they they don't. As long as James Dolan's the owner, they don't have the opportunity. They're not going to have an opportunity to win games, but they're also just not doing things the right way. You know, I don't know why they thought this team was going to be more competitive. They signed. They have five forwards. Uh, R.J. Barrett is essentially being forced to play point guard. Uh, there's just there's no. There's no identity, and you, you know you talk about a team that is is losing games, but it's the way in which they're losing, and and you saw it firsthand last night. Yeah, I agree. I think it's the way in which they're losing, the lack of execution, mainly because of the roster construction. It's hard to have a consistent team when you're changing the rotations constantly. You're trying to figure out if RJ should play the two, should he play the three. 
which is natural position. Then you have the Morris, one of the Morris twins. Um, you have the guy who, who used to play for the Chicago Bulls, who's a forward on the roster. You have Julius Randle. You have Taj Gibson playing center. And he's probably the only player um, who's in the right position in terms of in terms of playing center, like he's historically played that. I think Julius Randle has had success at the four and Morris has had success at the four as well. So being able to play three, four has been good for him. But I think that the problem is trying to figure out where, where RJ Barrett fits in, because I think his most comfortable position is probably the three and he's playing the two for the most part this season, but it's been a, it's been a struggle for them. And I think, um, some of the changes they've made, obviously, it's like you said before, it's like putting a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound. It's not going to really do much right now because there's so many things uh, wrong. And then you have the fan base who's yearning for a championship, they're yearning for success, and then the media is a whole different um, situation uh, there in New York because of the the pressure, the stakes, and uh, how big of a market New York is. There's just a lot going on there, and I think – as time progresses, they'll be able to turn the corner and kind of figure some things out. But right now, um, they're in a bit of a rut and are struggling. I think they've lost 10 straight as of yesterday. What's really interesting to me about the Knicks, CJ, is that they continually find ways to approach the problem the exact same way. You know, they're waiting for their savior. They're waiting to sign, you know, the next marquee free agent. Guess what? Marquee free agents are not coming to New York. They haven't since Carmelo and Amari came. And they haven't had a winning season since 2013 when Carmelo was a Nick and they went to the playoffs with the Celtics. Like, you're not going to change the problem by firing David Fisdale or Jeff Hornacek for that matter. And whether or not you thought Fisdale was a good coach, I happen to like him, is almost immaterial because at this point, you're not developing your, your core young players. Like, look at Kevin Knox, Mitchell Robinson, uh, R.J. Barrett. They're all playing out of position. Like, R.J. Barrett is playing point guard right now. You know, you wanted it to be Alfred Payton. He was hurt. Uh, you traded Porzingis, who, by the way, wanted to be a Nick. His dad was a Knicks fan. You traded him for Dennis Smith. You're not even really giving him an opportunity. So now you're playing R.J. Barrett at the point. Nicolina, a lottery pick, barely playing uh, significant minutes. It's just... It's 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 almost like the definition of insanity of doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. I agree. I think they have a lot to kind of figure out as opposed to their counterpart. The Nets? The Brooklyn Nets. Yeah, have that's the team that's done it right. Made strides. That's the team that's done, done it right. They've done it right. They've made strides and the whispers are that they're in a great place right now without Kyrie Irving. Obviously, Kyrie's the future of that franchise when Kevin Durant returns. But in the meantime, Spencer Dinwiddie been hooping. Um, in the last 12 games, he's averaging 23.8 points a game, three rebounds, 7.6 assists, and they're winning. They're figuring out ways to close out games. They're sharing the ball. Fifth best rebounding offense. They're getting production from a multitude of guys from bench players to starters, DeAndre Jordan selling into a nice role. Um, the mayor, Garrett Temple, has been huge for them, making some big shots late in games, defending, being the ultimate teammate, as he always is. Um, I think my question for you is, why is it that whenever Kyrie gets hurt and his team starts winning without him, people start to, start to say that teams are better without Kyrie, when in reality, it's hard for you to be better without Kyrie Irving. The the odd thing about Kyrie 
is that you're talking about a superstar perennial all NBA player, not not an average or above average player that you could say, well, this guy has higher upside than Kyrie. Kyrie Irving is, I mean, you know, you can make an argument that he's the best individual point guard in basketball. And, and I, I, I guess for me, I would say it's because of how things went down in Boston where they went to the conference finals and were, um, you know, one game away from making the finals without him. I think once they get him back in the lineup, uh, you're going to see a team that ex- that explodes. Yeah, definitely. But I think the question is, when will he be back in the lineup? I think originally they didn't, they didn't think his injury was as serious as it is, and he could be out for some extended uh, time just based on the fact that they're not sure how severe his injury is, um, which could be a problem for them come playoff time. But I think it's a bonus that they've been able to win um, nine of their last 12, although seven of those games came against teams under 500. They're doing what good teams are supposed to do. Good teams are supposed to compete against playoff teams, steal some of those games, but really take care of business against bottom feeders in any team under 500. And they've done that so far. They've consistently been de- building and developing their young talent. You saw it with D'Angelo Russell, who's obviously not there anymore as well. And they're they're building a foundation. Young coach Kenny Atkinson, who's all about player development, on par with one another. Like they're they're a congruent franchise, and so I think that's why you're you're seeing a lot of the success. Another team that's been arguably the best team in the league is the Milwaukee Bucks. They've won 15 straight. They're tied with the Lakers for the best record in basketball, 21 and three. And you know how how many times can we say this? But Giannis is is sensational. Why do you think he's or what do you think he's improved at that's allowed him to have even better numbers? I think he's rebounded at a higher clip. Um, obviously, getting 13 rebounds a game. I think he has like 15 games of at least 30 points and 10 rebounds, which is crazy. Um, he's still finding his teammates, and the Bucks have done a great job of surrounding him with players who can shoot, players who can make basketball plays. Um, quick decisions in terms of when to drive um, versus when to throw it to Giannis versus when to space and knock down shots. You get a Wesley Matthews type of guy in there. Chris Middleton's back from injury. You signed Pat a few years ago. You draft uh, DiVincenzo. You get these players, uh, a stretch five in Lopez who can knock down threes from 30 feet, and they all know their role. A lot of them are experienced and understand how to have success in the NBA, and that makes things that much more smoothly. And the kicker is that Giannis is shooting more three-pointers, you know, shooting three to five three-pointers per game. He's getting getting confidence in that shot. And when you have to respect his three-point shot, although you'll live with it instead of him finishing at 80% in the paint, that kind of changes the entire dynamic of the game because now he's comfortable when he goes to the free throw line. Now he's more comfortable shooting the mid-range shot in. I think this is just the next progression um, in his career. If he can get a deadly three-point shot, and by deadly, I mean league average. For him, that's deadly because he's able to do so many different things and be so efficient around the basket. You're looking at something we've never seen before. I'm talking about a team that could win 70-plus games and really make history based on their offense and defensive efficiency. If Giannis is consistently shooting 33, 34, 35%, is that good enough? Is that lethal for him from three? That is lethal. If he's shooting 30%, it's lethal because he's making one out of three. If he can get to 32, 33, his point per possession goes up um, right there because think about it. He makes one out of three, but he's finishing in the paint at 80, 75, 80% clip. 
that gives him a balance of shot distribution. And it also makes it so that when defenses load up, he doesn't have to waste energy trying to figure out ways to consistently get in the paint versus boxes and elbows and two, two defenders. You're talking about he's walking in at three-pointers. He's getting catch-and-shoot threes. He's getting threes to where he can dribble the ball, seam it up, loosen, it, loosen up his shoulder to make sure that it's the perfect shot. And when he's doing that, he's knocking it down, especially uh, the last couple weeks. CJ, what I really like about what Milwaukee's done is the adjustment it's made since the playoffs. You know, they obviously had issues with Toronto, specifically Giannis. They, what the Raptors did, aside from putting Kawhi on him, was they really packed the lane and forced other guys to beat them. Specifically, you know, putting three, sometimes four bodies in the paint. If Milwaukee was going to choose to initiate its offense with Giannis at the top of the key, you know, you're we're going to make you pay for it. Well, now you're seeing a more... I think consistent offense because it's it's really more of a five out based offense where every where every single person on the floor can beat you and is also being given the opportunity. So you have Dante DiVincenzo, for example. He played real minutes when Middleton got hurt. And you saw his ability to get downhill. And I was talking to Vin Baker, friend of the show, when Middleton went down, he said, Watch DiVincenzo. We really think he's ready to become a big part of this offense. We saw that. Um, we obviously know about Middleton, but how about Bledsoe now? It's not just Giannis playing the point. It's Bledsoe initiating offense. You're seeing a lot more cuts um, with with the Bucks, more more movement um, in, in, a, in a player in Giannis who's very comfortable trusting his teammates, uh, whether it be Middleton or Bledsoe or your guy Pat Connaughton at times or um, really anybody. And I think it's it's a real credit to the Bucks in terms of what they've been able to do offensively uh, with their with their adjustments. I'm not sure what the if you could pinpoint one way to beat Milwaukee, like what would it be? Because it's not just like make other guys beat you or just make Giannis uncomfortable. Like how 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 do you beat them? Well, for one, you have to score. You know, with them averaging over 120 points per game, you have to be able to put points on the board. No matter how good your defense is, they're going to get points. They're going to generate points in transition. They're going to score in the half court. They're going to make three pointers and get to the free throw line. So they're going to score. You have to score as well, and you have to figure out ways to not let um, the Lopez brothers beat you, especially Brooke. When we played against the Milwaukee Bucks a, a few weeks ago, we were in the game, and then Brooke Lopez hit two 30-foot bombs um, on, on consecutive possessions to give him six straight points. And then Wesley Matthews hit a three in the left corner, which gave him nine points in three possessions, three consecutive threes. And then Giannis was back to getting downhill and changing the game and wreaking havoc. So that's how you stay in the game. But you have to score. You have to kind of shut down a lot of the role players. They didn't even have Chris Middleton. He's another guy who's able to change a game uh, with his mid-post scoring, his, his jump shot, and his ability to just... Uh, draw a crowd around him because you have to respect the fact that he can shoot. So you you really have your hands full against that team, especially when they're playing at home because they're much more comfortable. They shoot a lot better and their crowd's able to get into the game. I just love the five out system and that they have five players, including a seven footer. Well, two seven footers and Brooke and, and Giannis now who can make threes and you have so many playmakers. Um, Are they, are they a dramatically different team than they were last season? Are they more confident? How much of this is just experience? Because from a schematic standpoint, we talked about some of the differences, but personnel-wise, they're very similar. I think it's definitely a combination, but more so the experience of being able to play in the playoffs uh, in past years together, going through some trials, 
tribulations with them losing in the playoffs in the fashion that they lost. I think they have a chip on their shoulders. They went they went in the summertime and tried to improve on a lot of their weaknesses. Um, Bledsoe's having a terrific year. He's playing with pace. He's comfortable. He's confident. I think all the, the players understand their roles. They understand where they're going to get shots from, and they understand how they can help their team. Um, DiVincenzo's a, a year older, as you said before. They add Robin Lopez, who's a player who can play in the second unit and gives them a different look in terms of you know playing five out to being able to have a post presence and a roller in some of those pick and pop actions and pick and roll actions. I think they just, they're just set a, in a place where they're more comfortable. And I think Giannis experience and winning the MVP, all those things has, has gave him more confidence, but also more hunger because he understands he's not a finished product. And if he can continue to improve, the sky's the limit, not only for himself individually, but for their team and franchise. Don't go anywhere because after the break, we're going to talk about Anthony Davis's crazy efficiency for the Lakers and much, much more. Stay tuned. The Los Angeles Lakers. We've talked about them, so I don't want to do too much on them. But have you? Are you surprised that Anthony Davis is well? Not that he's this efficient and this productive, but are you surprised at all that he's been able to find? such a comfort level with LeBron so fast? I'm not surprised at all because I know what type of player LeBron is. Um, he's played with star players. He's played with multiple star players at once um, historically throughout his career. He knows how to empower uh, the people around him. And the fact that LeBron is more so taking on the point guard role means he's going to go to AD early. He's in a position now where he's making sure that AD gets his touches. He's getting three, four five assists a game at times to Anthony Davis, and they're feeding him. They're making sure he's a priority and that he's comfortable and he gets his touches early in games, and then LeBron's able to take over late. And I think based on AD wanting to show that, hey, man, I'm, I'm one of the best players in the world. I'm efficient. I can do a little bit of everything. And not to mention, I still can be a defensive player of the year and MVP candidate in the same season because of my versatility. I think he's showing that. And he wasn't happy with the way things ended uh, in New Orleans. He wasn't happy with the picture they painted around him, um, that he wasn't for his team, that he was trying to force his way out. He was doing all those types of things. And I think he's trying to rewrite the story about himself. And the fact that he's on a playoff contending team, a championship caliber and a championship caliber team is showing that, hey, these are empty numbers I've been putting up. I can be great on great teams as well. You told me this two years ago when you guys played the Pelicans in the playoffs, and afterward we were talking about Anthony Davis, and you were just saying this guy is just unbelievable. Like what he can do out there and his versatility, and he's he's incredible. And, and we're seeing it now. It's not empty numbers. It's it's winning basketball, and uh, it's it's been – the, you know, those, watching those two teams, specifically um, the development of of Giannis as a shooter, and then of Anthony Davis with LeBron has been really enticing. Um, another team that, and specifically a player, CJ, that I've been surprised about in a, in a negative way has been uh, Nikola Jokic. I don't, I'm not sure what's happened to him. It's not that he's been bad, but uh, he's averaging 16 a game, which is the lowest since his rookie season on just 46 percent and obviously you guys had a heavy dose of both him and Denver in the playoffs where he was sensational a triple double threat every night um man I'm 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 disappointed and I don't want to be like I don't want to sound like he's been awful because he hasn't been but he's certainly not been the same player 
Yeah, he certainly hasn't been the same player. And I think Denver's just going through an identity crisis right now, trying to figure out how to improve on last season, uh, some, some issues with the rotation early on in the season, figuring out who's going to start at small forward, who's going to finish games. But one thing that's been consistent with the Nuggets is their defense. Um, they've continued to put pressure on you, make it difficult for you to score and control the pace. And that's a big reason why they're still 14-7 and seven after losing, I don't know, four of the last five. Um, I think Joker's a guy who's off to a slow start compared to how he finished last season. But I think once the year ends, his numbers will kind of balance out. The team will kind of balance out. But they just have to find themselves offensively. And I think with some of the changes they made in the roster, um, it's going to take time just as it's taken time for a lot of other teams across the NBA. But one thing that's been consistent is Joker's ability to rebound and pass the ball. He's rebounding the ball at a high clip. He's still passing, getting assists, keeping everyone involved. He just hasn't been as efficient offensively as he has been in past years. And people have pointed to his weight. People have pointed to um, him maybe not being in the the shape he was in, in in previous years. I'm not sure if that's true or not. But I think one thing's for certain that he is a very talented player and he'll be able to figure it out because of his versatility, because of his skill set, and because of the fact that they are a playoff team, a playoff caliber team who was projected to be a potential top three seed. Yeah, I mean, the weight thing doesn't bother me because he's never been like the most at least physically, aesthetically pleasing person. You know, he, he's never looked like he's svelte, right? Like this guy has never right. been someone that's going to come in all cut, all cut up. And it doesn't, I don't really know how much it affects him because he's not, he's not, he's never been someone that's going to blow by you. He's very methodical and, and deliberate. And, and he's, he's a wonderful player to watch. Um, but Denver, like Denver was, when you, when you beat Denver in seven, the thought process was, okay, Denver is one of the most enticing young teams in basketball. They have all this good young talent, obviously Murray and Beasley and uh, the walking button, the walking bucket himself, Will Barton, Jokic. Um, there's so many, and Michael Porter. I mean, there's so many guys, and they haven't been the same team. How much? How much different is it when you're when you become the hunted like that? Which obviously you guys have experienced not only this season, but also in the past of being a consistent playoff team where teams are coming after you every night. Is it is that part of the reason for Denver's struggles? I think that could be a part of the reason. Um, in past years, they've been trying to get to where they are now in terms of being the hunted, in terms of being a team um, other teams get up for. Other teams circle that date on the calendar and look forward to playing the Denver Nuggets because of how good they've been in past years and how good they are supposed to be this upcoming season. They've had a great home court advantage in past years. And the fact that they've been losing games, not only on the road, but at home, kind of shows you that teams are looking forward to playing them. And I, I don't think it's been like that in past years. And that's a credit to them and how they've been able to develop and improve over the years. But it's also a different type of feeling when you're playing from close to the top as opposed to trying to dig it out the bottom. I think some of their players are used to having to prove themselves, and now they have a proven track record. You're talking about Joker, who is in the conversation for being an MVP. Will Barton is an established uh, NBA veteran who's been in the league for eight years. you got Millsap, who's been in the league for a long time. He's seen it all. He's been on 60-win teams. you got Jamal Murray, who's putting up identical numbers to last year, about 18 points, about 
six, seven assists a game and shooting 46% from the field. So you have all these players, uh, Grant, who have played on playoff teams. Gary Harris is there. He's been around for quite some time, and he's been an efficient shooting guard who can play both sides of the ball. You have all these players who've been in the league for a long time, and I think sometimes players get complacent. I'm not saying that they have gotten complacent, but I think they know how to turn it on when they need to turn it on. And, you know, being 14 and 7 is not the the worst start in the world. Things could be a lot worse. And this is coming from someone who's on a team who's five games under 500. It could be a lot worse. It's just important that you weather the storm and right the tide before it's too late. And I think they're in a position to where being seven games over 500, eight games over 500, it's not the end of the world. They can still right some wrongs and, and, put, and hang their hat on defense. Okay, so this was not scheduled in the pod, but um, I've been thinking about offensive output and buckets. Can we give some love to Eric McCollum? This guy has put enough crazy-ass numbers. <laughs> and he has a very similar, if not identical, game to you. And I love that you guys have the same types of moves and counters and almost identical shooting form. <laughs> but for those who haven't seen, Eric is putting up crazy numbers uh, in the Russian league, which is an excellent league. And he's doing it with uh, the the classic McCollum step backs, and it's it's been a it's been a real treat to watch. Um, is this his best pro season? It's arguably his best pro season. I think one of his more efficient years since he won the Euro Cup three years ago in Turkey. I mean, he's averaging like 21, 22 points per game in the VTB league, playing like 25, 26 minutes in in the uh, Euro Cup. He's putting up big numbers as well, uh, very efficient, getting to the free throw line, shooting over 40 from three uh, at a high volume. Uh, Like you said before, we have a similar game, a lot of similar moves. He's got a step back that's unguardable, and he can get to wherever he wants on the court, on the floor. In a hurry, so I'm, I'm very happy and proud of him. Good to see him having another great year. He's looking, he's looking to try to get a two-year deal next year. So uh, he's really backing it up with his play. And um, I've been watching games when I can and, and just enjoying the show. Stay tuned because coming up, we're going to talk about Vince Carter and his monumental career. Vince Carter, CJ. Someone that went from maybe the best athlete in the NBA to, well, he's he's no longer that, but 1,500 NBA games, okay? So in January, his career will hit four decades. Jeez. Four decades. I don't even know how that's possible. <laughs> What's your take on Vince Carter's career? Not, 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 not just that he's a Hall of Famer, but like how has he been able to do it and adjust his game so much? Jeez, four decades. That's crazy because he's going because he was in the '90s and now he's going to 2020. That is amazing. But I think his career has shifted because of his understanding of the game and his skill set. He went from one of the best dunkers to ever play the game to a catch and shoot guy, and that's hard to do. You know, he had explosiveness. He had mid range. He had mid pose, pick and roll, ISO. He did everything in the NBA. One dunk contest to now being able to still be athletic at 40 40 plus years old, still be able to blow by guys, hang in the air on guys, manipulate a defense at 40 years old, but more so from a thought-provoking standpoint of creating space off the bounce, using shot fakes, using fadeaways, figuring out 
openings on the court, how to get open and, and knock down catch-and-shoot threes. He's thinking the game now as opposed to reading reacting the way he did as a youngster. He's reading, reacting, and thinking the game, but more so using his experiences in the past and understanding of the game to succeed now. Well, that's what's so impressive is he he entered the NBA and so much of his career was based on you know explosive athleticism, and, and he's been able to change and adapt. We do not see that very often. Can you imagine yourself, CJ, and I've asked you this, but I'll, I'll ask again. Can you, like, how do you envision a scenario where you're playing well into, well into your 40s? I mean, honestly, I don't think I'm going to want to play that long. Obviously, things change, but I think my body would hold up for sure. I'd be able to um, physically. I think from a skill set standpoint, the way I play is a, is a style that translates um, from generation to generation to all brands and levels of basketball, especially with how the game's evolving. Um, I'm not really posting up. I'm not dunking on guys. Like I'm scoring and playing this game from a pure level of understanding his skill set and hard work. So I think that's something that translates for a long time, but I'm just not sure if I want to play into my forties. That would be like, what, 12 more years. Woo. CJ, this is obviously a loaded Hall of Fame class, and when you have three guaranteed players like a Duncan, like a KG, and like a Kobe, it makes it very hard for everyone else, especially returners. But one guy I like to focus on is Chauncey Billups, who you know entered the league as the third pick and really was almost labeled to bust, was traded several times. By the time he got to Detroit in 02, he had already been on four teams. That was his fifth team. Ultimately wins an NBA championship, wins a, a finals MVP, uh, earns five all-stars and, you know, not only shed that bus label, but I think it's a great story of someone that entered the league with very high expectations and was able to have a complete turnaround. And I hope he's a hall of famer, Chauncey. I don't know if he is, but I'm, I'm interested to get your take, especially considering who he's, uh, who he's in competition with, including his former teammate, Ben Wallace. I think he is a hall of famer. I think you look at the impact he's had on the NBA, the clutch shots he's made over the course of his career, winning championships, being the force behind those bad boy Detroit Piston days, I think it only makes sense for him to get in. And also, we know the Hall of Fame is about more than just what you did on the floor. For Chauncey, uh, J. Walter Kennedy Citizenship Award. He won an NBA Sportsmanship Award. He was voted the NBA Teammate of the Year in 2013 and obviously had his uh, number one retired by the Pistons. One more for you. I don't know if this guy's a Hall of Famer, but I just, I mean, Tim Duncan, I, I don't, was he really that good? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait. You're, you were like, dead wait. silent because you were dead silent because you're like, wait, is he really that obtuse? I was listening, but I was I had to process it. Like, wait, <laughs> is he really saying this? I just wanted to see if you were listening. Arguably the greatest power forward ever with ease. And it's crazy that all these players are eligible next year. Anytime you have three shoe-ins, it makes it very difficult for the other guys. But that's what you have with Duncan, KG, and Kobe. Um, before I let you go... And we wrap up the Sidney Crosby um, ep. Any any good wine lately? And more importantly, any good uh, Netflix binging? I've been watching Handmaid's Tale, as I told you before. And oh. it's unbelievably crazy. I don't know who wrote this, but to have that type of imagination is kind of scary, but thought-provoking because I really enjoy watching it. I don't know what, what that makes me. Um 
it's demoralizing to women. And I don't like that part of it, but I'm interested in seeing like how it finishes, you know, based on um, some of the key key characters in the show. I don't want to give away like what's happening if people haven't watched it yet, but it's, it's sick, but it's thought provoking and interesting at the same time. (laughs) And I'm the type of person who wants to see how it ends, like to see how these script writers are going to tie everything together and finish it. But I've also been watching Top Boy on Netflix, uh, the Summer House version, 2010, 2011, um, before Drake uh, reproduced and puts out a new episode or a new season of it. I've been kind of watching the previous seasons to get a better understanding of the show, and it's been very interesting. What have you been watching? And then, and then I'll get into wine and tell you what I had last night. I got one odd show for you that's, I mean, not odd, but just off the radar. It's called The Outlander. It's on Netflix. I'm, uh, it's, it's third season's about to be released. I'm midway through the first. And the storyline, in a nutshell, is it starts off in World War II in uh, Great Britain. And the it's a husband and wife. The wife, and this is where I just love these types of shows, she time travels back about two centuries to the 1700s. And she's all of a sudden stuck in the same place she was except now it's 1740-something. Oh, geez. And she's got to deal with it. It's very well done. I shall check it out. It's been a long, long season filled with ups and downs. But one thing that's consistent is that you have to enjoy life. Take advantage of each day. Understand that there's a lot of blessings that come with living in Oregon. It's not just the fans. It's not just the food. It's also the grapes which I guess could be considered the food, but I'm talking about the grapes that turn into beverages. The wine. I've been fortunate enough to have some some very fine wine these last few days. And I tried something new at a restaurant and it was called the Betts from Family Winery. It's a Columbia Valley Cab Sab. And I guess the name is Pere de Familia. I don't know why I said familia when it ends with an E, but it was very good. It was a 2012, or 2011 actually, from Columbia Valley. And they've done a great job with their grapes. It was bold, it was more tannic than smooth, it was more dried and sweet, and more acidic than soft. And it had those berries, hints of berries, a little bit of oak, and more of an earthy taste, you know, similar to most caps. It was among one of, it was among the top 1% in the world. And it went very well with my oysters which, side note, we have some of the best oysters in the world here in the Pacific Northwest, and steak and baked potato. It was an amazing blend. Very, very good. I would highly recommend it. And the price point's around 76 bucks, according to Vivino. Liked it a lot. I like that you're venturing into the cab world again, because normally we talk Pinots on pull-up. Yeah, normally we do do Pinots. I strayed away. I figured it was time for a change. All right, bro. Get this win against the Nugs, and... Uh... We'll talk to you next week. Sounds good, my friend. We shall try our best. Uh, Like I always say, we're about two weeks away from being around 500 or over 500. We're getting there. Got to put some things together, get some wins on the road, get some wins at home, and get back in this playoff picture. So I give us about two weeks. You can catch us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio.com, backslash Pull Up with CJ, or wherever you get your shows. I will be at the Browns game on Sunday in Arizona. 
just to let you know. Oh. Ten and six may be out the picture, but nine and seven is still alive. Just don't give up. And don't forget to... Don't forget to give up. Don't forget to give up or... Pull up. Pull up.